0: Here we go. June the 7th, 2015, lecture discussion number 199 on the Book of Romans. And I write here, well, welcome back. I'm glad that some of you, you guys, this is to you, uh, have remembered. As expected, uh, many are still running around in the Alaska wilderness, which is perfectly acceptable here at beautiful downtown Cliffside, in spite of uh, what uh, Bill the Cow said in the pregame. Uh, We don't hold any malice towards those who disappear for the entirety of what we define as summer. By the way, have you noticed, what are we at? We're in June, right? How many weeks? Three more weeks, and then what? Days are getting shorter. That's right. That's right. Yes, darker. And that means snow. It's right there, baby. Hey, uh, let me help you. I, I'm attempting to play softball again at my advanced stage. I show up. It's 46 degrees and snowing in the mountains uh, The other last Thursday, and, and we played softball, and it was cold, really cold, But like I, I like to say, but at least it was windy. Yeah, yeah well, that meant no mosquitoes. Anyway, uh, for you Internet folks, uh, we've been hiding for the last two Sundays in case you've wondered where we are. And I need to thank a bunch of you. Valerie uh, called to tell us that our website was offline. And, Valerie, we got that to Ben, and 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 um, and we got that taken care of if you're still with us. And I hope you are. A very nice message from Valerie. Uh, Daniel from Oregon also called with a question on apostles. And, and Daniel, I'll, I'll get to that when I can. Um, hopefully soon. Uh, Bob uh, from San Diego uh, used the observer effect. premise to prove that I have existence, because he's seen me, he's observed me, and therefore I exist, and that was very funny, and uh, Jeff from Pittsburgh uh, called as well, he's uh, having a great time using free will to attack the monistic philosophy uh, very successfully. I don't answer the church phone very often, you folks out there, I do sometimes as best I can, but I'm working full time, as you know, still, on other endeavors that are all failing, we call it my construction business. Perhaps, again, you've read my book, How to Make $100 in Construction Over 30 Years. But I just want you to know I'm very encouraged by all those messages that you really have no idea. Also, uh, Dr. Peter, I read your letter to the class during the pregame. For obvious reasons, I didn't feel it was appropriate or allowable without your permission to put it onto the Internet. And, yes, uh, I read almost all of your letter, Dr. Peter, I'm considering now reading it every Sunday, just for the fun of it, for about a month, and then, and then having a test. You should have seen their faces, sir. It was amazing. And For your Internet folks, Peter discussed the Iranian capacity to develop a nuclear device from plutonium-239. He he made the case, expertly as as he would, of course, that the centrifuges that occupy so much concern are not necessary if the Iranians have so diversified towards plutonium-239. And Janet from Oklahoma, I read your letter too. Janet was pointing to the planning stages of a 10-region economic division, the world being segmented into 10 distinct domains. As we know, that's uh, Revelation 12.3, 13.1. Revelation 17, 12. The subdivision of the world into ten kingdoms is a prominent end times prophecy. The Bible has said from the time of Daniel, from the image of Nebuchadnezzar, that the world at the end of the age of the Gentiles, which Nebuchadnezzar began the age of the Gentiles, 586 B.C., at the end of the age of the Gentiles, the world would be segmented into ten economic kingdoms. And we live, therefore, in perilous times. What has been unseen is now becoming the scene. We're watching a one-world central bank that will control all commerce, the uh, removal of physical currency. We're seeing ten economic world zones. The Middle East is erupting into war. Every week something new arises. And as you know, I can't wait for gravity. I mean by that, I think the issue that is gravity is going to ascend to the surface, and I believe that is an end times event as well. The consensus today, since the early 1900s, 1916, uh, today uh, scientifically the consensus is, is that what we perceive as gravity is the result of the curvature of space and time. You know that as Einstein's general relativity. And recently, you might have noticed that John Forbes, uh, John Forbes Nash, the uh, noted uh, mathematician, he was killed in an automobile accident. He was in his late 80s. I don't know if you knew. That's the, uh, the guy in the movie, The Beautiful Mind. Don't, don't believe all the movie, right? Go investigate him. He was a mathematical genius. And, and Mr. Nash uh, had a replacement equation for Einstein's theory of relativity. He was trying to improve Einstein's mathematics. And he wanted an equation, uh, searching for an equation that would uh, account for quantum gravity and allow a reconciliation between the quantum and the, uh, the, or the microscopic and the macroscopic. What, what they call in physics or what they call in, the, in this uh, theory a grand unified theory or the theory of everything. Now, I, I don't have any idea if Nash's equation is valid. But I believe that uh, mankind's understanding about gravity is about to explode, exponentially increase. Um, if, John, if not John Forbes Nash, then somebody else is going to do it. And I suspect we're on the precipice. We're right on the edge. You might say the side of a cliff. <laughs> That's hilarious. Cliff side, if I've got to feed it to you. But I think we're right on the edge of understanding gravity like we have never have before. So, just as an aside. Anyway, where have we been and where are we now? Uh, where were we two weeks ago? Well, you might recall that we have been circling the signs that are God's wife. Uh, something that God himself, Jesus Christ, Jesus God, God manifest in the flesh... The Lord God Almighty, those are all the same person, right? That's Jesus Christ. He specifically references in Luke seventeen thirty-two Lot's wife. And, and I call it the sign of Lot's wife. And, and I've long held that Lot's wife was of particular importance. And obviously, Christ inserts her into his signs that accompany the end times. So we have the days of Noah... Notice how I say that. The days of Noah, those are differentiated, by the way, from the day of Noah or the day that Noah entered the ark. So I have the days of Noah contrasted or compared to or alongside of the day Noah entered the ark. And then I have the days of Lot. Days of Lot. And I have the day that Lot... The day that Lot left Sodom. Then I have the day of Christ and I have the days of Christ, and in all of that is inserted remember Lot's wife. And so we have been wandering around uh, that aspect. And those, of course, are the pieces of Luke 17. Now, what is it? So let me look at it. 26 through 32. Actually, it's, it's actually 20 all the way to 40. But uh, we'll get to that in a minute. Those are the pieces that Christ uh, uses or addresses as he's talking to someone. And we'll get to that in a minute. And those pieces, by the way, have to be reconciled with Matthew 24. And lots of people do that. It's not unusual. Let me get it exactly for you here at 36 through 44. So I have to reconcile Luke 17, 26 through 32 with what is very close to it in Matthew 24, 36 through 44. And also Luke 21, 34 through 36 about writing that down or even remembering it. We'll get to it. And none of that, this reconciliation, is hardly ever found. You'll search and search and search and you won't find it. Nobody takes it on, which means what? If you can't find commentators or biblical scholars taking on Luke 17, 26 through 32 and Matthew 24, 36 through 44 and putting them together, they won't touch it. What do you do now? You go, cool. Let's find out why not. There must be something really neat here. And there is. It is rare to find a commentator who will submit an opinion on Matthew 24, 36 through 44 and combine it with Luke 17, 26 through 32. And it is also equally difficult to read or listen to or find an opinion on what, remember, Lot's wife means. And what, what I mean by that, something that goes beyond the traditional view. The tr- traditional view is that God was holding Lot's wife up as a what, a bad example, as somebody that did something wrong, as some somebody to uh, to avoid, to look at her behavior and hold that in disdain. That it's a warning. If you do what, what happened, to, if you do what Lot's wife did, you will be. You will meet the same end. Isn't that That's the common position? And again, if you haven't been here the last few weeks, I don't think that's so at all. I don't think that's what he's saying. This is God. He had lots of warnings he could have used if that's what he was doing. He said, remember Lot's wife. Did anybody hear his tone of voice? Anybody see his facial expression? Was he angry when he said it? He's God. Did he scream? Was he calm? You figure that out. What was his tone of voice when he said, remember Lot's wife? But it's very difficult to find opinion on that that goes beyond that traditional view that I mentioned before. A warning. Again, Lot's wife is much more complex than that traditional view, in my opinion. I have to say that. Remember this. Who takes her out of Sodom? Who is there? Christ himself is there. He's the one that destroys Sodom. It says so. His angels grab her by the hand. She is a woman who is grabbed by the hand by an angel. And I want you to always remember that. Taken out of Sodom by the hand. And I want to consider the likelihood, I want you to consider, all of us, me too, the likelihood that remember Lot's wife is actually an extraordinary sign that wise people will understand. I think the disciples who heard him say this realized what he meant after the fact. I don't think they got it when he first said it. They probably had the wrong understanding, but over time, I think they got it figured out. When, in other words, if this is a sign and it comes to pass, the wise, the ones who will see it, will re- immediately respond to it. They'll go, Look, Lot's wife just happened. We're supposed to remember Lot's wife, and it just happened. And I've often imagined that they would say to, uh, to each other, Look, That was Lot's wife. We now know what time it is. We now know what's going to happen. We have seen Lot's wife. And we're supposed to remember her. And we're supposed to remember that she was taken out of Sodom by the hand. You're focusing on her being destroyed, uh, buried in salt, not turned to salt. She clearly tried to return, turned back and ran back towards Sodom. She wasn't turned into a statue of salt. The language is clear. She was buried in salt. That's what most people focus on is her death. But don't do that. Focus on the fact that she was taken out by the hand by Christ and his angels. Why would you remember the death? Why wouldn't you remember the s- salvation now let's grant me my premise that it is a much more complex uh, question than typical and ask the naturally subsequent questions then and we should begin by asking the foremost of the naturally subsequent questions that's a joke no one laughed it happens here a lot it gives me a chance to take minutes of Somebody on the Internet will think that's funny. And when they write, I will read their letter to prove it. I know most of you think I made up letters. I make up letters. It's impossible for me to have made up Peter's letter. Don't you agree? Okay. <laughs> you might call that the most perceivable of the perceivable inquiries, too. I mean, that's possible. Anyway, Eli- Lot's wife is a woman. Duh. That's where we're going to start. And women in Scripture um, are often symbols of things. They are symbols of nations. They are symbols of entities. They are symbols of events. In other words, they are representative. They typify. It might be another word you could use. For example, the bride of Christ is a woman, and she typifies, symbolizes, represents the church from Acts 2 to now. The wife of YHVH, or Yahweh, if you wish to to, uh, pronounce the unpronounceable, the ineffable, the wife of YHVH is the nation of Israel. That's who is typified, uh, that woman is typified as Israel. The harlot, in Revelation, is ecclesiastical Babylon. Jezebel was killed. That is a prophecy of an event Jezebel's killed in 2 Kings 9, 30 through 37. She paints herself and she is trampled and thrown out of a building, essentially. So, those are women that have representation uh, all over them. So, uh, obvious question is, is who is Lot representing, Lot's wife, sorry, who is Lot's wife representing? If, if Lot's wife is symbolic of an event, a nation, or an entity, which one is it? What or whom does Lot's wife represent? To rephrase it, then who exactly, specifically, also then, must heed this command? This is not, this is not a suggestion by Jesus Christ, God Himself. It's a commandment. Remember Lot's wife. A time is going to come where you need to remember Lot's wife. So who's he talking to when he says it? Who exactly, specifically, must heed the command to remember? Who's going to be there It's a direct order? Who's got to, who's got to obey that order? And then what will be realized when uh, Lot's wife, the, the event that is Lot's wife is witnessed? And obviously, we we got to revisit the context in order to resolve this. Uh, I think it's a mystery, and I think it's very difficult, obviously. God said it. Whenever God says something, I expect to have to spend a lot of time to figure it out. He likes that, I think. I think he wants us to spend a great deal of time studying what he says and realizing the depths and the layers to it. So we're going to attempt to answer that first. We're going to look at the overall context or the overall reference. What is Christ referencing when he says what period of time, what event, what is the condition of the world, what is he talking about when he says, remember Lot's wife? Because this is something that is often taken out of context. So let's just read 17 of Luke 26 through 32. Next week we'll read Matthew 24, 36 through 44 because I've burnt up a lot of my time already in the pregame. So here we are. Uh, uh, verse, uh, verse, where do I want to go? 26. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. I didn't write the days of the Son of Man, but you, now the days of Noah and the days of the Son of Man have a relationship. How many days am I talking about? They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day That Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot entered, went out of Sodom, it was, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So the day the Son of Man is has a relationship to the day lot went out of sodom or if you will the day that lot's wife went out of sodom and the day that noah entered the ark they have a relationship that's why we have to let me go ahead and put that in on the board for you we're going to have to deal with this the day that christ is revealed what does it mean christ revealed revealed is who Revealed as creator God. That goes here and that goes here. Those three have a relationship. And he goes on to say, In that day he who is on the housetop and his goods, uh, possessions, is another way to put that. In that day he is who is on the housetop and his possessions are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. That tells you, by the way, that Lot's wife turned back. And then here is the key phrase. Inserted in this, remember Lot's wife. That's a commandment, an order. Remember this woman. Let me go on. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. What that means is holds on to or lets go. I tell you, in that night, there will be two men in one bed. The one will be taken, the other will be left. Two women will be grinding together. The one will be taken and the other left. Two men will be in the field. The one will be taken and the other left. And whoever was listening to him, they asked Christ a question. Where, Lord? What's that mean? Where Where are they going? Where are you taking them? Who's taken them and where are they being? Remember, Lot's wife was seized. She was taken. We're going to take these. Remember Lot's wife. And Christ said to them, wherever the body is, there the vultures will be gathered together. Always ask, how much is the same and how much is different? When we get into Matthew twenty we're going to find a lot of things that are the same, but we're going to find things that are not the same. One of the things we're going to find that is different is remember Lot's wife. So where does Lot's wife fit? Why did God himself place her where she is placed in what he said? Do you think it's happenstance coincidence that he didn't think it through? Just... Then I'll throw her in here. Of course not. This is omniscient God who said this. So, what are our choices here of who she might represent? We have Israel. We have the church. But those are already represented. But maybe she's also representing them. And we're clearly talking about What? We're talking about the return of Christ as king of Israel, the the day that Christ comes back for Israel and saves them. That's the context. So that's taken. Israel's taken. The church is taken. The return is taken. What's left? The rapture is still there, isn't it? So we have to decide whether or not the rapture is what Lot's wife represents. Another question, who is Jesus speaking to? That would be helpful to add that into the discussion. As we know, there's a cause and effect to Scripture, or an order, for lack of a better term. In the case of Luke 17, 20 through 37, not 40, 37, there's a cause and effect here going on. We can figure things out. The catalyst for 20 through 37, what causes Luke 17, 20 through 37, is what is immediately in front of it. What is immediately in front of it, if you turn your page back, is Christ is cleansing ten lepers. So somehow the cleansing of ten lepers causes Christ, if you want to say cause or catalyst, that's a human frame, isn't it? That's a human frame of reference. God does not have that frame of reference. But... uh, Consider that for a second, that the healing of ten lepers and the fact that one returns and nine do not, the healing of the ten lepers is what is causing this discussion, for lack of a better term. Cause, again, a bad word, biblically inaccurate, but nonetheless a human perspective. So in order to fully understand Luke 17, 20 through 37, we're going to have to figure out what happened with those ten lepers. Or we're going to make a mistake now. I want you to note Luke seventeen twenty. Now, when he was asked by the Pharisees, so after he heals the ten lepers and one comes back and nine don't, the Pharisees come to him and ask him a question. The Pharisees ask this question: When he was asked by the Pharisee, when the kingdom of God would come? So something about the ten lepers causes this, the Pharisees to respond immediately. By the way, are they coming to ask an innocent question? Of course not. They're incredibly wicked. This is a trap, isn't it? These ten lepers come back, or at least nine of them come back to see the Pharisees. Why do the lepers go to the Pharisees? We have to answer that. Most of you know we've gone through that many times before. But the lepers that are healed go to the Pharisees. That makes the Pharisees rise up and go ask Christ this question. When is the kingdom of God? When will it come? He answered them and said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation what does that mean I love that that verse because that's the observer effect right why do the Pharisees come to Christ after they recognize that ten lepers have been healed why do they come to Christ and ask this particular question obviously Christ healed those ten lepers and everybody knows it. And he sent the ten to the Pharisees because the healing of lepers was an unbelievable, extraordinary event. Luke tells us that, Luke 4.27. No lepers are ever healed in the history of the nation of Israel except for Naaman, the Syrian, and Elisha. No lepers ever been healed. Not one. We have a Leviticus 14 purification ritual. No one has ever done it in the history of Israel because no leper was ever healed. And now we have lepers being healed by the thousands. is one of Christ's senses of humor it demonstrates his sense of humor. He overwhelmed them. The healing of lepers was a great threat to the Pharisees, and they knew it holy mackerel honey child we have healed lepers who does nobody does this we count on nobody doing it how come no one how come they count on it because they make money off of leprosy it's one of their biggest income streams they confiscate all of the economic uh, accumulation of every leper and they take it and it's theirs and the leopard goes off and screams unclean and dies by himself in the wilderness they get his stuff all of a sudden, the lepers are coming back, and they want their stuff back. In the meantime, you have to you have to do this ritual that no one even knows how to do. By the thousands, maybe the hundreds of thousands, I, we don't know. But the Pharisees were under a great deal of pressure. It cost them economically and politically. People were going, what do we need a Pharisee for? We've got a guy that can heal leprosy, as it was at the time of Jesus, not the way it is on Molokai. And so the Pharisees hate Christ, and they hate that he's healing lepers. Uh, look at Luke 4, 28 through 30. And Christ is healing lepers again by the thousands and sending them to the Pharisees. And, they, and, and again, they're required to perform that Leviticus 14. He's got them tied up in knots. All they're doing every day is doing this ritual. probably takes a couple of hours per leper. He's got them completely shut down. And I'm sure that he's enjoying that. And the Pharisees respond. Finally, these ten, something about these ten, one's a Samaritan, he's a foreigner. Something about these guys, though, that moves them. we have to investigate that. The Pharisees respond to these ten by demanding, the word says demanded. Now, when he was demanded by the Pharisees, they demand that Christ tell them when the kingdom of God would come. And that's a trap. I think it has something to do with the leper that went back, because the leper that nine of them don't go back to Christ after He heals them. One of them does, comes back, and the one that comes back is a Samaritan, a foreigner, a stranger, and he glorifies Christ. How do you glorify Christ? You glorify Christ by saying something to Him. What do you say? You're God. You want to glorify Christ? Tell Him He's God. Does He know it? Of course he knows it. What's the problem? Yeah, the problem is us. We don't know it. And we don't say it. But the one who understood that Christ is God, the one who said it, the one who understood that Christ is God manifest in the flesh, the Pharisees were probably having a lot of trouble with this guy. Probably couldn't shut him up. And he's a Samaritan. He's a foreigner. But I want to know, who were these ten cleansed lepers? How did they get to know each other? How, why were they together? Why is it only one of them returned? Only one of them returned to tell Christ that he figured out that Christ is God himself. Anyway, the point is, is the ten lepers are a cause and effect for today of the Pharisee question because of these ten lepers the Pharisees ask this question they demand an answer and obviously the Pharisees ask the question in an attempt to trap Christ and God as they always do every time the Pharisees ask Christ a question it's always an attempt to trap him what's the trap this time if he says I am the Messiah what do they do they tell the Romans if he says I'm not the Messiah what do they do they tell the people, he's not the Messiah. See, he admitted it. Because what were the people saying? He's cleansing thousands of lepers. He's got to be the Messiah. So effectively, they are asking, are you the Messiah? If he answers yes, the Romans will attack. If he answers no, the Pharisees will obtain their standing and their authority. They saw this as a win-win outcome for themselves. But, what is Christ's answer? Something they didn't anticipate. What a shock. God has an answer that no one anticipates. He says, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. How did God know about the observer effect? How did he know? Never mind. Let me rephrase it a little bit. He says, the kingdom of God, or the Messiah, will come invisibly, quietly, unseen. You won't see me, Pharisees. And he goes on to say, nor will they say, see here, see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is in your midst. There's a hiddenness to the Messiah when he comes. Christ says, you won't see me. And then he says, I am God, doesn't he? For indeed, God is within your reach. It could be translated that way. In your midst, you can touch God. They don't even know he's God. And Christ constantly says that to the Pharisees. And then it, then it says, verse 22, after he answers the Pharisees with the observer effect, that's a joke, Jesus then does this. He said to his disciples, so there is your order now. The lepers... The Pharisees come, and then the disciples. And what does he say to the disciples? He says, days of Noah, day of Noah. Days of Lot, day of Lot. Days of Christ, day of Christ remembers Lot's wife. That's what he says to his disciples. I need to repeat that. 17.22 of Luke. Jesus is now speaking to his disciples. So, therefore, 22 through 37 of Luke 17 is said by God to his disciples. Now, who are his disciples? What is a characteristic of his disciples? See, we have the most obvious of the obvious questions. Now, don't we? Let me ask it this way. Are his disciples saved or unsaved? Duh. His disciples are saved. How many does he lose? But for some reason, the fact that his disciples are saved escapes the majority of commentators on Luke 17. So let me go back one more time. Ten lepers, one Samaritan returns. questions A question from the wicked Pharisees. An explanation given to the saved disciples who also ask at the very end of it, where were they taken, Lord? And Christ's answer to them, to the "Where are they taken, Lord?" every bit as mysterious as the kingdom of God does not come with observation. Wherever the body is going, wherever the body is, there will be vultures gathered. That's what he says. So, what's the obvious question then? Where's the body? Whose body is it? Why are the vultures eating the body? Because that's what vultures do—they eat bodies, right? What does this have to do with Revelation nineteen seventeen, Ezekiel thirty nine, seventeen through twenty? That's Magog Gog and Armageddon. But I don't want to digress into that. Jesus said to his saved disciples, uh, and we'll read more of it next week, lightning flashes, just like Noah's flood, the day that Noah entered, just like the day Lot and his wife left Sodom raining fire. And remember Lot's wife who was taken by the hand from Sodom by angels. One woman will be taken, the other woman will be left, though they're grinding together. One man will be taken, the other man will be left in the field. Where will they be taken, Lord? Wherever the body is, there's the vultures eating. Just like Revelation 19:17, Ezekiel thirty nine, seventeen twenty. 20. The armies of the Antichrist and the armies of God. Gog, like Lady Gogog. She's a famous musician, if you don't know. I'm, I'm hip and happening. I know all the I know all of those talented, extraordinarily talented musicians that are, that are very popular. So again, who is being told to remember Lot's wife? Did he tell that to the Pharisees? No, he did not. Are the Pharisees saved? No, they are not. But he he said that to the saved disciples of Christ, of whom he has lost none. Let me ask you this. Did Christ, he's telling them when the end times are coming, and it's going to be bad, lots of eaten people. Is he telling them to remember Lot's wife in order to frighten them into a certain behavior? Does he frighten people? Is he saying to them, I'm going to scare you so that you're not destroyed? Is that that the view? You want to defend that? Christ is scaring them. Does God ever say, I'm scaring you. I want you to be frightened like little chickens. Is that what he says? No, he says, fear not. He comforts us in times of tribulation. Comfort yourselves. Take heed of who I am. Fear not. And they are told to remember a woman who was taken out of Sodom by the hand. She, her hand is held. Did she escape from the hand? She gnawed her gnaw the hand of the angel off and escaped. Is that don't want to continue mocking that view. Okay, I do want to continue mocking it, but I'm running out of time. I will mock it more next week. Remember, the Pharisees are asking Christ to tell them when will the Messiah come, when will be the end of the Gentile rule over the nation of Israel, and Christ says the Messiah will come without being seen. No one will see me. And then Christ says to his own, they will say, look, but don't look. Don't follow those who look, who say look. Now, yet we know at the end of the age, Christ, the whole world will see him come. So what does this mean? What is he talking about? How come things aren't seen, but then they're all going to be seen? Remember Lot's wife in the middle of the day Sodom was destroyed and the day Noah's ark was uh, shut He says this, but first, I must suffer. How does God suffer? How do you make God suffer? Can you hurt him physically? I mean that's ridiculous, isn't that ridiculous? how do you so how does he get how do you hurt him because he weeps is is his suffering physical or spiritual so we got Noah and Lot and remembering Lot's wife intermixed into the end day, the day that Christ comes at Armageddon. And somehow it all perfectly melds to Matthew 24, 36 through 44. And next week, we will put all of it together. So let's rise and be dismissed. See how fast.